Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with Duncan Robinson. Duncan Robinson is the Brussels Bureau Chief of The Economist and writes the weekly Charlemagne column. Duncan, uh, thank you for doing this. I'd like to start, given that The Economist is a notoriously uh, anonymous publication, uh, just by talking a bit about you. you. Before you came to this job, you wrote, obviously were a political correspondent of The Economist in London. Before that, you were here back here in Brussels for the Financial Times. But this is your first time at writing a weekly column. So first of all, what do you, what do you call the Charlemagne column? Is it, is it an op-ed column? Is it a commentary? What is its kind of nomenclature? It, 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 it's a column. Uh, it has a, a worldview. It, every piece has an argument. Um, where it differs from other columns is that it's not about me. You're the sort of custodian of this, <laughs> of this strange brand. There, there, there's slightly less ego attached to it because often that, that seems to be a problem with uh, commentators in general. They get very attached to their own opinions, whereas this is a very <laughs> good way of keeping the feet firmly on the ground. So you inherited a, a brand and you'll bequeath this brand to somebody else when you move yes. on to your next gig. You okay, pass it on. <laughs> well, I'm not screwed up in the meantime. Well, I, I'm just curious also the life of an op-ed writer, anonymous or with a byline attached. It must be quite strange. Is it? Is it? It's all stressful trying to find and difficult to find a theme each week to write about. Or the, is, is the problem more that so many things to write about? So the problem is the choosing of which theme to, talk, to write about. It's more of the latter. It's, it's about timing and topic. So you, because we're weekly, we're always trying to not just follow, do, not just follow the agenda and do last week's news next week, because that would be a very dull way of, of doing it. So sometimes you have to be completely off topic. And if there's a, a, a big story in Brussels, you have to sort of go around it and then might tell something completely different because you go to print on a Thursday. And if there's, this is usually a problem for summits, which are usually on a Thursday and Friday. So sometimes we just have to sort of ignore it and write about the, the domestic political situation in Bulgaria that week or something and what lessons that has for Europe. It, 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 it's, it's a very fun, fun, fun gig, but the toughest bit is always thinking of ideas. Well, that's it. So the ideas come maybe based on the current affairs agenda. Do you set yourself a deadline by which to, to submit your copy and after which you start panicking? Uh, yeah, well, you come up with the, the week sort of runs Thursday to Thursday. So on Thursday afternoon, you're sort of coming up with ideas for next week, planning ahead. I send over a few pictures to my editor. He picks which ones he likes. Uh, and then, then I head off and, and write to it and try to speak to as many people as possible. That's the, the, the main thing that might not be obvious from the outside, that although the, the Economist doesn't actually quote many people, uh, we do speak to lots of people. We do try and do as much reporting as possible, and good columns are reported columns rather than someone sitting in an ivory tower and bashing out what they think of Europe. I know The Economist is a very serious, solemn publication, but it is, it is known for its, its kind of wry wit. I know you to be a very witty person. Do you find that you have to slightly... Um, filter your wit when you're writing uh, your column or does that is that part of you trying to express your own personality despite the absence of the byline there's an element of seeing what you can get away with but the um, editors will always uh, make sure i don't go too far but it, it's one of those, the one of the things especially when you're writing about brussels the main task is not to make it boring because it can easily become technical arcane and seem irrelevant and we've got a very international uh, audience we've got a lot, a lot of american readers about half of our audience is in the u.s 
And so you, you have to make these topics lively and interesting mm. enough for somebody who's about to go on a 10 hour flight from San Francisco to Tokyo. And if they, and if you haven't done that, if you haven't grabbed the attention of this Midwestern businessman, then you've failed in your job. Okay. Well, I thought we'd use now the time of kind of the nitty gritty of this conversation. Now you explain to me how you go about doing your job uh, by talking about a, a number of issues on the kind of the, uh, on the, on the agenda or the, the intrays of various important political leaders in the European Union, um, kind of speed dating, or if you like, uh, we're going to mm. rattle through a number of topics uh, in rapid order. First of all, starting with the, the German presidency, uh, Duncan, without going beginning into detail of the different dossiers, um, this is obviously Germany is the biggest uh, member state in the European Union, biggest economy. It hasn't had the presidency since 2007. Uh, it'll be, in a sense, Angela Merkel's, I wouldn't say swan song, but her last uh, go at presiding over the EU and the terms of the presidency. Do you think there is a danger that there are too many expectations placed on the German presidency, or on the contrary, do people think that there's real uh, scope for, for progress because it is the Germans in the, in the chair? I think what's useful about having the, the Germans in this position right now is that it means that they, they don't have anywhere to hide. They have a tendency to sort of lead from the rear. Um, but now there's this sort of equinox almost of Germans. You've got Germans in every single sort of senior uh, position. They're dominant in the EPP, they're dominant in the commission, they're, don they're, do they're dominant in, in, in the council. So every sort of lever of power within the EU has generally got a, got a German pulling it, um, which is good because they're the biggest country, they're the most important country, and they should be nearer to the, 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 the front of things. And this sort of, this, this is a helpful shove for, for, for Germans to get over their sort of reluctance to leave their leading, whether they want to or not, they're, they're leading it. This, this idea of the, the, the phrase, the reluctant hegemon, you hear a lot about. So mm. you think they are still quite reluctant or they're getting used to being the hegemon? They're, they're still, still reluctant, but they don't have a choice. Right. They've been shunted. They've sort of been shunted centre stage. And so it would just be sort of preposterous for them to sort of duck it at this point. And then you, you, when you also factor in the fact it's sort of Merkel's swan song you do have this quite lucky uh backdrop to 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 the presidency where where things could happen and in terms of the recovery fund things have things have happened yeah well on the recovery fund i mean i think quite rarely maybe not uh, uniquely there'll be uh, one if not two european councils uh, in july this uh which is quite rare i think um well obviously germany in the chair with the recovery fund and the multi-annual budget uh, mff on the on higher the agenda what what what's your take on on those councils in terms of outcome? Will there be a breakthrough and the the frugal four or the frugal one, if it's just the Netherlands, will be will 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 back down? I've been relatively optimistic about there being a deal basically since this was announced because there's there's so much leeway. I think they've been relatively smart in terms of mashing together the budget and the recovery fund altogether because it means that you basically got one point eight one point eight trillion to play with, which is a huge amount of flexibility. And so you can imagine a situation where the Dutch and co get to keep hold of their rebates, they get to brag about the fact that they've kept the, the budget to a, a, a minimum and they, they, they attach some conditionality. Uh, the Italians and the Spanish get something that they, they wouldn't have dreamed of uh, a year ago, which is sort of collective debt being issued by the EU which is a huge step. It's a Franco -German, based on a Franco-German plan, so they're happy. The, the Eastern Europeans get lots of money, so they're relatively happy as well. Everyone can take something from it, and everyone can march home to their domestic audience and say, yes, we won. 
Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be a really smooth uh, passage. It's going to be a total mess, and you will have a huge row uh, this time. I'd be, I'd be absolutely stunned if they, they did it in, in, in one meeting. It feels like there will have to be at least, at least two about it. But I'm not sure that particularly matters in the grand scheme of things. There's this, this huge, this, this horrible tendency, particularly among journalists in, in Brussels, to talk about crunch meetings, <laughs> when nothing ever actually crunches in Brussels. That you can just come back in a fortnight when you've calmed down a bit and then agree it. But that said, there was to be this kind of 11th hour aspect to it, no? the, the 11th hour or whatever, the last day before agreement has to be, has to be struck. Oh, true. And that's what, what people don't quite appreciate outside of, of the bubble. It is that pressure. It's that being 27 individuals in an airless room at 2 a.m. in the morning. Like, these people are human. Uh, and you, 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 do, <laughs> it's, you need to create that pressure. And that's just, that's just the way it works. It's not great if you're stuck in the press room at, at 3 a.m. in the morning. But, hey, it gets results, sort of. Right. So on this to-do list of the German presidency, we've done that. <laughs> we've sorted the recovery fund and the budget. Moving on. Easy peasy. Easy peasy. Uh, let's move on to Brexit. The thing about Brexit, of course, is it'll happen at the end of the transition during the German presidency. Mm -hmm. But for the moment, it is still done, an exercise undertaken between Michel Barnier and his counterpart, David Frost, in the UK. There's no kind of German presidency formal involvement. What kind of role does the German presidency pay, play in trying to bang heads together in getting an agreement. In this sense, I don't really think Germany having the presidency matters. It gives them an excuse to get, get more involved than they, they, they otherwise would have. But Angela Merkel was always going to be involved as it, as it comes to the crunch status because she's one of the most, if not the most important leader in Europe. So the idea of her just that she would have sort of, sort of sat twiddling her thumbs well, well, Brexit, the Brexit negotiations were ongoing. If she didn't happen to have the rotating presidency, um, just simply isn't a factor. Germany was always going to be uh, heavily involved. That's not to say that that sort of British fallback of the Germans riding to the rescue is going to be a factor. It's that Germany's obviously going to be a big part in the EU position, which it always has been. But if the signs uh, start developing maybe after summer that there's, there's not sufficient progress and we're heading for, a, in effect, a no-deal Brexit, Australia Brexit, if you like, mm. as, as the UK government likes to call it, um, surely at that point Angela Merkel and her colleagues would intervene? Someone will have to. I don't know who it will be. It could be a Macron moment. He, he enjoys the, 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 the stage. It could be a good cop, bad cop routine with, with Merkel and Macron. It, it could be any of these. Like this is, There'll be an element of... Maybe not not choreography is the wrong word, but there there will be there will be high drama. Hmm. Um, I've got no idea how it's going to play out, but the, the the one thing that has been a good bet throughout this process has been um, betting on Boris Johnson surrendering, then declaring victory, um, and effectively just choosing the path of least resistance. Like he's, like politicians, how the the wizards, good politicians, are wizards insofar that they can just sort of. Uh, manufacture consent and, uh, and create, they can bend reality to their will. Uh, and Johnson has that ability to do that. So if, if there, there, there's, there is scope for an, an agreement and, and given Johnson's skill in that regard, I'm relatively optimistic. Okay. Well, as we know, most of us who aren't in the media, um, 
get our news obviously from the media uh, and therefore if the media doesn't cover a particular story one tends to think that that story doesn't exist anymore an issue rather than mm. the story and i'm just wondering when it comes to things like migration or even the eurozone uh, are those not two issues are they not they're not necessarily sorted but because they get less coverage now even in the economist and other august uh, media outlets that the issue, the issues are still there or are they are much not not as as acute as they were in the past the fundamental issues are, are still there, but in, in both cases, in terms of the Eurozone and migration, like the, the, the problems that were there in 2015 and before that are, are not those. So the, the sort of symptoms have, have cleared up. But the, the fundamental issue, which in both cases is this sort of awkward gap between a sort of federal system and an intergovernmental system. Uh, are, are still there in, in both cases. So you've got the situation in both cases where there's uh, responsibility without power at, at a European level. There, there's an expectation that the, the EU has to do something, uh, but there's very little agreement on and very on what it should do, and very little scope for the things that it can do. It, it simply doesn't have the powers or the capacity to to shape things in this way, but it still gets uh, blamed for it, uh, and that's a tricky problem. And and that's not going away because the the, the the fundamental flaws in both the euro and the EU's migration policy are still there. Right. Okay, well, moving on rapidly, as I said before, thank you for that. Um, since the end of last year, of course, we've had a new European Commission, new president, Ursula von der Leyen, and new colleagues, new high representative for foreign security policy, new president of the European Council, uh, and so on and so on. And with that has become a whole new uh, lexicon of, of phrases that I people starting to collect in a geopolitical commission, uh, more talk about strategic autonomy, especially in the foreign and, and security field, uh, digital sovereignty, um, this idea of European champions in the tech sector, all those together, maybe sounds better to mash them all together, but uh, how, how seriously do, do, do the media in particular take all these new aspirations? In terms of Buzzword bingo. We, 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 we try and try and avoid it uh, when you when you can. Like you don't become geopolitical by calling yourself geopolitical. That said, all of those things linked in together, that 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 is a push by all uh, power brokers in Europe to give Europe more autonomy to allow the EU to be an actor on the international stage. And to the, the way it's often frame is uh, is quite high high-minded high way they, they describe it as sort of Europe being in control of its own destiny, which it's, it, it's certainly an interesting, interesting topic and it is a relatively, relatively universal shift. It, it's an area where most people do agree on, like most people do want Europe to be more powerful, but few people can agree on what it should do with that power. Okay, but but nonetheless, there's, there is. Do you think there's a strategy behind it? You say it's not just words aren't enough. Um, is it a, a potentially an effective strategy, or or the Commission and and other institutions given the wrong analysis? No, I, I think it's the, the the right aim. I just think it will be very difficult because there are often contradictory uh, urges when it comes to how, how to use that power. So on Russia, if you speak to people in Warsaw about what they should do, what, what should happen in Moscow, you will get a very different answer to if you speak to in Paris. And it's the same with China. Um, there's a very different view in Berlin compared to other capitals. And that's, that's fine. That's just politics. People disagree. 
Um, but that, that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy for it to solve. It's going to be very difficult to come up with a, a, a coherent position or, or, on all these issues. And uh, until you can, then, then there will always be this sort of handbrake on, on, on Europe's ability to act on the, on the, on the international stage. But that's, that's an issue that's been around for a long time, of course, it, oh, both, in, both in formal terms, you know, unanimity in foreign policy, but also in mm-hmm. informal terms, even if, you know, unanimity is not required on the back of the treaty. Nonetheless, people, you know, member states like to tend to agree. And there are issues internally, of course, not just externally with us, obviously mm-hmm. with Hungary and, uh, and Poland in particular, maybe other member states, frankly, uh, in terms of a, a different worldview, should we say. Um, is this a kind of thing that the EU is just very good at living with and, and fudging? Or are things maybe reaching now a turning point, even a tipping point? A, tip, a tipping point in, 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 in which in way? Term, in terms of other members, the, the, the majority member states taking a tougher line, for example, on Hungary and to a lesser extent Poland. I think in, in terms of Hungary and Poland, it looks very, very bad in both cases. So... We, we're talking before the, the results of the second round in the Polish presidential election. But you can easily imagine a situation where the legitimacy of that is challenged uh, in either case, um, because it has, the election has been run in this quite odd way. And so if one of the biggest members of the EU is incapable of running a presidential election without uh, multiple judicial challenges, that is a real issue. And it's a particular issue for the, the EU because the EU likes to pride itself on, on being this odd phrase, like a, like a value superpower. If yeah. you've got a US that, that's sort of turning its back on, on liberal values, then, then the EU becomes the last beacon. But it's very difficult to be a value superpower if you have some countries within the bloc backsliding. On, on on democratic norms, and that is a a, a big problem. You can't lecture other other people uh, if that's what's happening at home. Right. Well, a final question then, Duncan, and to go back to where we started, um, the media. Um, the UK finally leaves the European Union at the end of this year. It's already already left, but the transition obviously mm-hmm. is still in operation. Um, I know the Economist is, as you said earlier, an international organisation, but you're still headquartered in the, in the UK in London. You're a Brit national. Um, do you and your other uh, UK media pals find things have changed uh, since we formally left uh, earlier this year? Uh, and do you think there'll still be uh, the same kind of level of, of, of UK press media presence in Brussels? And do you, still, do you still find that you're having the same access as you had before? It is a, there's been a few interesting shifts because last time I was here, I was here in Brussels from 2014 to 2017. With the FT, right? Um, with the FT. And the, the reputation of Britain has just taken a huge shift and it's a, a, a shift downwards. The, the, right. our, our, we, we have a much worse reputation than we did before. And that, it, it, it's peculiar because I don't think the British state became incompetent overnight. Um, it was probably coasting on a reputation it didn't quite deserve. Uh, before Brexit, and now it's being uh, sort of tarred with a brush that it doesn't quite deserve after Brexit. Uh, it's, not, it's not that the state's incompetent, it's just that, that Brexit is just a, a relatively tricky thing to do. Uh, and that bleeds over into uh, how, how, how Brits are, are, are treated a little bit. There does, there, there does feel... You mean to the be British a, media, you mean? Well, also sort of sort of... Brits in general, but British media too. But there is, 
they're, they're, basically, the Brits used to have a positive stereotype. We were seen as this sort of um, bit annoying, uh, but, but relatively smart, bit smug, but not as smug as the French. It was, it was like, it was like they, they, we were seen as sort of competent and useful. And now the stereotype is that we're sort of uh, blundering idiots. And as ever, the truth is, was, is, is and was always somewhere between those two things. And in terms of like British coverage of the EU, like my, the ironic thing is that post Brexit, more newspapers now have correspondence in, in Brussels, and I think more British voters now know more about the EU than they had ever dreamed of uh, five years ago. Uh, so that's that's the great irony of the situation. We finally learned about the block at the moment. We've left it, and that will continue even after the end of transition. That beefing up of the UK media presence and coverage in in Brussels. I think it will have have to because whatever relationship. Uh, the, the UK and the EU end up with it's going to be complicated and it's going to be fiddled with incessantly for the coming decades. So we're going to end up with, with probably like Swiss-style standoffs over whatever regulation in the in the financial sector, uh, and it, it, it's going to be a never-ending story. And so people who were there was a big push in the UK that the sort of slogan the sort of border Brexit pass the deal, get it done. People want was were sick of hearing it. But the, the, the bad news is that they're going to keep on hearing about it whether they want to or not. <laughs> well we have to leave it there. Duncan Robinson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. <laughs>